0: I remember when the show closed, I was so devastated. I went back to my parents' house and I just cried for six months, but it was a wonderful learning experience for me because I learned that within any craft, within any pursuit, within any interest or life path, you sort of have to focus on the thing it is that you purport to do, right? And keep the focus on that.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. This week's guest on the podcast is Wayetu Moore. Wayetu is the founder of One More Book, which is a nonprofit that encourages reading among children of countries with low literacy rates and underrepresented cultures by publishing culturally relevant books that speak to their truths and by creating bookstores and reading corners that serve the local communities. Her first bookstore opened in Monrovia, Liberia in 2015. Wayatu's writing can be found in Guernica magazine, The Rumpus, The Atlantic magazine, among many other publications. She has been featured in The Economist magazine, NPR, NBC, BET, and ABC, among others, for her work in advocacy for diversity in children's literature. Her novel titled She Would Be King will be released by Grey Wolf Press in September 2018. Her memoir is also forthcoming with Grey Wolf in 2019. In the interview, Wayatu shares her story of escaping Liberia during a civil war and moving to the United States. We talk about how reading books helped her rehabilitation during this difficult time period and inspired her to start a publishing company of her own, which is one more book which is dedicated to celebrating multicultural stories that are largely missing in the larger publishing industry. She shares with us the failures that she encountered along the way and the lessons that she learned from them. Before we get going, as always, if you're enjoying these interviews, please take a moment to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on, and leave a rating and review on iTunes and Google Play. That really goes a long way in promoting the show to other listeners who might be interested. If you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian, which lands in your inbox every Thursday and shares with you four to five things, an article, a book, a blog post from me, sometimes a video as well, that challenge conventional wisdom and help change the way that we view the world. If you'd like to sign up for that, you can go to my website, which is ozanvarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N-V in Victor, A-R-O-L.com, and just drop your email address. Or you can text my first name, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. I'll also send you my free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, I'll turn things over to Wayetu Moore for our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And as always, thank you for listening. Wayetu, welcome to Famous Failures.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So the reason which I just shared with you before we started recording why you're on the show is actually because of my wife. She read an interview with you in a magazine. (laughs) I don't remember what magazine it was, but she was so blown away that she tore out the page She circled your interview with a big black marker. She put it on my desk with a post-it note on it that said, you have to interview her. So welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you.
0: Well, thank you. And thank the missus.
1: (laughs) Will do. (laughs) So I'd love to begin with your background because you've got such a fascinating life story. So you were born in Liberia. How did you end up in the United States?
0: Yeah. So my family moved to America when I was five years old. My father and two sisters and I relocated because of the country's civil war. And my mom at the time, she was actually at Columbia pursuing her master's degree. She was a Fulbright. When the war began, we could not get in contact with her. We actually went into hiding for about six months in my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's village. And on our way to the village, my dad had seen one of his old co-workers and he was being sort of like bullied, terrorized by one of the rebels. And my dad gave the rebel his last money, the last cash he had on him to let the guy go. So this man ended up escaping to Ghana. And he wanted to, of course, make sure that he connected with my mom once he made it because we weren't able to to contact her. My dad had mentioned to him where we would be going. And. As soon as he he got to Ghana, Liberia is very small, four and a half million people. So these communities, especially at that time, the late 80s, early 90s, was still very minimal in the United States. So he started to call people in New York, hey, do you know anyone who knows ma'am? And he finally got in contact with her. He told her exactly where we were. And so then my mom, of course, being who she is, began to plot how she could get us out because it was such a volatile period. To make a very long story short, she ended up going to Sierra Leone and she found there was a series of rebel women soldiers who at the time, because the context of war, I mean, I I think from the West, when we see it reported in the news, it's it's reported in such simplistic and binary terms like here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. You know, this is this is what happened, you know, or these poor child soldiers and. There are complexities and and colors that are unreported. A lot of the women rebels at the time were getting recruited, were being told that, oh, if you come fight for my army, then we won't kill your family or we won't hurt your village. And then, of course, they join not really knowing what they're fighting for. It's always like under the pretense of freedom. Then once they, they see the reality of it, begin to commit atrocities, obviously then from... My mother, from what she said and her experiences with this woman, is that they're looking for ways to reconcile. And so, during the war, there was a series of women who, or a network of women, I should say, who would go into the country and get people's families across the border. But the the civilians who were traveling with them, they would tell the rebel leaders that, "Oh, it's my cousin," or "It's a prisoner." And so when my mom was in Sierra Leone, she met a man in in a bus who told her about these women because she essentially she didn't know how she was going to get across the border. And so she ended up through this man. He went across the border, spoke to someone, found this woman, and she came, spoke to my mom. My mom told her exactly where we were. And obviously, this was this was very risky because it could have been a trap. But she said that she just felt that it was the right thing to do. And before the woman left, she gave her a picture. She said, you have to show this to my husband or he's not going to come with you. And she showed it to my dad. She came. I remember I was five years old. We were in the village. There was like a uh, she had this huge bottle of of palm oil. She came with a gift. My mom had paid her for each of us because, of course, they these women had found a way to commercialize what they were doing. And we traveled with her for maybe about four days and crossed the border. And we were in Sierra Leone for about a month. And then we moved to New York and my mom had only missed a week of classes. And so we lived in her dorm room with her at Columbia. I should also mention the story about the rebel women. That's something that I have been researching, child soldiers, the rehabilitation process and the role of women in wars that took place during that time and my goal, I mean, my memoir is coming out next year, actually, with Grey Wolf, but my goal is to share these stories, because I think that what happens when there's coverage of wars, you see the saviors being foreigners, usually, but there were people on the ground, there were complexities, there were roles that were being played that we don't have visibility to, and that we couldn't even imagine, Um, and I'd been trying to find this woman, even, I mean, I'm actually headed to Liberia tomorrow to do some research. And every time I go, you know, I'm communicating with people. Do you know if there's any way that I can get in contact with this woman and have yet to be successful in doing it? But I just, how wonderful it would be if she knew her contribution to our family. We lived in my mom's dorm room at Columbia until she graduated. Don't tell them. Um, uh, <laughs> And at which point they tried to figure out what we were going to do as a family, considering that our country had been devastated. So we moved around quite a bit. My family lived in Connecticut and Memphis, and we settled in Texas when I was eight. And that's where I spent my formative years. But Liberia was obviously always a part of me, always very present. But with four and a half million people, I barely ever heard about it outside of my home. And that absence was was really loud. So when I realized I wanted to be an artist and I began to write, Liberia was one of the first places I went to.
1: And this, by the way, is one of the primary reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because the work you're doing is is so important. As you said in your response, you know, there is this simplistic tendency in the media in the portrayal of war in military conflict in general and one stereotype being that the foreigners are always saviors but I think that simplicity is even more acute in the context of Africa where all countries sort of like get lumped into one <laughs> and oh you know, gosh, people yeah. are surprised when I tell them that like, there are actually more than 50 countries in Africa but yeah, people tend 54. to think of like, yeah people tend to think of Africa as like a singular unit.
0: Yeah it, it seems as a monolith. And that is portrayed across media, the aid industry, of course, like I think um, it's wonderful when people are able to go over sort of give give up their lives and contribute. But those are the only saviors that you see in these narratives about, and not only Africa, but just like impoverished developing countries. and, And that's very sad. And even when you go there, because in 2015, I opened the bookstore there and Almost immediately, what happened was aid organizations began to contact me like, oh, we want to give you money to expand your inventory. We want to give you money throwing like, you know, large sums of money or wanting to throw large sums of money in my way. But the exchange is that I would have to then put a large logo on my storefront. And so what you see happening in these countries as you're walking down the street, you will see, OK, well, I guess this is USA funded this and, you know, some other NGO funded this and UNICEF funded this. There's an issue with that because I've worked in nonprofits here for quite some time, writing grants for local nonprofits. And there's never any scenario where a nonprofit organization would have to put, you know, for instance, the Robin Hood Foundation logo on their storefront. But for some reason in these developing countries, you see that happening. And unfortunately, what it does to the local communities robs the sense of agency and it sort of diminishes their role as their own savior. So telling these underrepresented stories. Is very, very
1: important. So tell us why you decided to open the the bookstore in Liberia. And this is a larger conversation, of course, about your publishing company, one more book. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to hear the story.
0: Yeah. So I didn't begin to go back to Liberia until 2013. So from when I was five to 2013, I hadn't gone back. Of course, like the the country had been in, in a little bit of unrest, but a lot of my family during the war moved here. But my parents, they relocated to Liberia back in 2012 or so. So then my family, my siblings and I started to revisit. And I was on a trip and I was about to head back. There are about three or four main bookstores that are in Monrovia, I went into one looking for a novel to read on the plane. And the store clerk asked me, oh, what class? And I said, oh, no, if it isn't for a class. I just, you know, I just I just want to read in the plane. And and that concept seemed like she said, oh, no, we don't have that here. And so there are some books like novels that you will find maybe like um, at some grocery stores. They have turnstiles, but the concept of reading for leisure seems to have been perhaps a casualty the unrest from then. And obviously it's coming back. You see the revival of artistic community and literature and even film in Liberia, but for so long of it being missing because people had to focus on survival. I mean, even in the West, like we don't, We a lot of my friends will say, hey, I don't have time to read. I don't have time to read for fun. So you can imagine an environment where you have to assume so many roles and, and so many jobs just to feed your family that you're not picking up a book to read for fun, but reading was such a huge part of my rehabilitation as a young immigrant that I wanted to find a way to create such a space in Liberia. And so that's that's how the bookstore came about. And we were able to open we were able to open it in 2015. It sort of sat for a while because of the Ebola epidemic. All businesses were closed for several months. And I remember I'd, I'd come back here and people were asking, are you, you sure you want to do this? Like, you sure you want to you know, open open something? It, was kind of, it can be a little unstable, but there were so many brave and wonderful Liberians who were going back anyway and contributing and just doing whatever they, they could to revive the country. That I just held on to it. And obviously, the Ebola epidemic ended a lot earlier than people thought that it would and we were able to open it up. So it serves as a reading center, a bookstore, not quite a library because we haven't figured out how to conduct like checkouts, but it's one of my favorite places on the planet. Being able to put together books that have influenced me as an artist and also writers of African descent, but then some of my favorite writers like Tolstoy and people like that who have contributed to my craft has been really special for me. And also seeing the people who work there, we have a a fellowship program in partnership with the University of Liberia, where the honor students in exchange for their housing, which we pay for because some of them were commuting so far to get to school, even though that there were dorms, but the dorms, you know, a lot of them couldn't afford. So we pay for the housing. And then they teach classes at the store. And so it's wonderful because we collaborated on um, some of the lesson plans, but it was all original, all up to them. And it was things like, you know, environmentalism in a Liberian context and innovative ideas that they can now share. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I left when I was five. So it's complex as well, because then if I go back and say, oh, you know, I'm going to you know, I'm open the store, I'm going to teach these classes and, and I'm going to be the one who's present here in many ways. Because I spent so much time in America and am so Americanized, I'm seen as foreign. So making sure that within that space, there were local voices that were, were representing the change was also something that was imperative.
1: So I want to pick up on maybe three things you mentioned. The first being, you said reading was really important to your rehabilitation as a young immigrant. Could you say a little bit more about that and why that was the case?
0: Yeah, so I was shy, but I was pulled out of that shyness in many ways. So I'm the second of five children. When we moved here, it was just the oldest three. And then my mom had my brothers later on in America, but they were overwhelmed because they were immigrants and they had taken a, a dramatic dive in income. I know this is sort of like the typical immigrant story of, oh, this person was a doctor overseas or was doing this and that. And now they're driving cabs. And my parents' case, it wasn't that drastic. My mom's a teacher. But what happened is that she was given credit for her graduate studies, which was at Columbia. But then the undergraduate portion, she had to take all these supplemental classes. It was the most bizarre thing. And, you know, you uh, restudy for her certification and that took time. My dad, he's an engineer by trade. and that wasn't translating over to the American workforce. They, they were perplexed. Like, well, what does engineering look like in Africa? And they asking him all kinds of ignorant questions. And
1: do you would think that that would be a universal thing? Right. I know, and math, exactly. and engineering. Math,
0: yeah. math is universal, <laughs> but that wasn't the case with his employers. So they had to spend a lot of time taking classes and getting these supplemental certificates to sort of bolster the training and experience they already had, which was very unfair. But during that time, the family then, because we were such a large family, we were pretty overwhelmed. And so I didn't have a choice to be shy because my mom would then, because we were in the South in Memphis first for about two years, and then Texas from eight up until I left for college, my mom would be talking on the phone with someone, and be like, you know, what did you say? And she said, Oh, you know, and she's speaking English. That's their, both of their first language. But obviously, with a deep accent, people just could not understand her. And so she would give me the phone. She's like, Okay, well, tell them this, tell them that. And this is English, by the way. And obviously, it probably sounds like a pigeon. I, I do know that, you know, Liberian English, just like any pigeon, has, has its idiosyncrasies. But she was speaking English. And so I would end up translating, which was a very mm-hmm. bizarre and psychologically complex thing to go through. And it had its consequences because my I'm on the phone with someone who's like, oh, like, oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, how old are you? Or, you know, are you guys okay? And then questioning my parents' capacity to parent because they couldn't, you know, make an appointment with the doctor, but she was doing everything that she could. And out of frustration, she said, you know, can you please talk? So I would end up communicating, kind of liaising on um, their behalf sometimes to, you know, doctors, electricians and, and whomever and making these appointments. And I was because I was so young, I was maybe about seven or so. And, and this is something that that many, many, many young immigrants go through, but albeit those who are from bilingual homes where their parents don't speak English. But the fact that my mother was speaking English, it had such a dramatic impact on me because I was like, well, what, what is it about her that they're marginalized. Like, what, what is it specifically about her that they're refusing to understand? And so I'm very confused. And it made me, you know, with this shyness, I wasn't able to indulge like this natural introversion. I wasn't able to indulge because my parents needed me and because my family needed me any time or any opportunity I had. I just spent it by myself. I needed to be sort of by myself and making sense of this new world and this new scenario that was so different from. What our lives were like in Liberia, which was very middle class, happy, nuclear, my parents were successful. So I just became obsessed with reading. It was escapism, but it eventually ended up being rehabilitation because, in seeing the commonalities between myself and some of the books I indulged, I felt accepted and acceptance, I think at that time was really all I needed. I needed like consistency and acceptance and books provided me that.
1: Are there any books that stand out as being particularly powerful to you uh, during that time period?
0: Yeah, there was a book called Family that I really liked. It was written by a woman named Audrey Spencer, I believe. And I also, I read a bit of a fantasy, a lot of fantasy, a magical realism, the Hobbit, anything like R.L. Stein. I liked horror, and then I uh, *Babysitter's Club*. *The Face on the Mill Carton*. I, I used to be obsessed with that, and I would actually read it. I would read it over and over again. And my mom was like, "You're reading that book again?" And it's about, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was. I, I had bizarre taste, I think, as a young kid. Even with some of the the books that I was reading at the time, as I said, which were fantasy. My mom always got a little worried. <laughs> she was like, "You know, why are you why are you reading this?" And then when I went from reading books that were atypical, like horror or mystery or fantasy to writing. They were not censoring, but she was, she ritually spied on us. So she was always (laughs) just, What is this? So what what is, you know, just making, wanting to make sure that we were okay. I think she was obviously aware the changes that we had been through in the transition and just wanting to make sure that we were healthy. So.
1: I mean, the story you tell about books as escapism really resonates with me. I'm an immigrant as well. So I came to the United States by myself when I was a teenager. But books for me were particularly powerful, actually, when I was still living in Turkey. I mean, I I love my country, my home country, and my parents still live there. But the education system was quite conformist in that there was really no room for creativity, right? It was all... I mean, it's to some extent the same in the United States too. The public school system in the US was designed to create industrial workers as Seth Godin writes. Um, not, 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 you know, knowledge workers to thrive in this information age. So for me, books became a way of escaping. And cultivating creativity, so I would just get lost in science fiction books. Like Isaac Asimov was a huge favorite of mine, and that that became a way of of me being able to cultivate creativity, the side of me that got suppressed in the mainstream education culture, and I developed that through books.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure you probably can then also relate to when you do have an opportunity to see your particular story or family or country represented, if it's misrepresented, then you feel even more alienated. So you sort of have to go to books or have to sort of find these outlets to remind you that the place that is being represented is not a real place, right? Like this, as we spoke about before, this Africa that is very much presented as a monolith, that's not a real place. That's something that has in some ways been created for a number of reasons, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, people feel better knowing that they are contributing to this, send a penny a day or just a penny a week can create. And and philanthropy is wonderful in that way. Charity is wonderful. It can be wonderful and useful, but in other ways, just very harmful because it creates these ideas that are very, very marginalized and don't challenge us at all to think about the world as a colorful, complex, vast
1: place. And I think that's one of the primary purposes of of your company. One more book. Uh, we talked about the, the bookstore, but I also want to shine a light on the other aspect. As I understand it, the company is also a publishing company, right? So you're also publishing books.
0: So I would say that after moving to New York, after grad school, I realized that as a woman writer, a Black writer, an African writer in the larger literary industry, there were expectations that were, as we mentioned before, just really seldom aligned with what I knew to be true of my culture and race and gender. So I didn't necessarily have you know, a cannibalism story to tell or other these some of these other sensational narratives that people expect as an African writer, that you will have to tell. So I I desired more to maybe like unnerve and dissect how my cross-cultural identity surfaced throughout my childhood. And so when I began to pitch my novel, which is Magical Realism, people were like, oh, well, fantasy in an African context, like maybe, but why don't you tell your immigration story first? Because... I feel like in a lot of ways that has become formulaic. Like if you're a writer from an immigrant background, it's like, okay, well, why don't you find a way to tell us about how you came here, you know, you're struggling with assimilation and then you go back and you realize I'm neither, but I'm both. (laughs) And I decided that like, yes, I did want to tell my family's immigration story, but it wouldn't be my introduction, right? I wanted to really engage with the written word In a form and in a genre that I had grown to love and, and that I respected. And so I was having such a hard time with that and saying like, hey, you know, I have this African fantasy, African magical realism book that I would love to work with one of you. And this is obviously when I was trying to find an agent out of that frustration of not really finding a home. And I was getting told that I should be telling another kind of story if I wanted to be successful as a writer. I called my sister. She is an illustrator. And I asked her if she would be interested in collaborating on a book. And I said, but not just any book, something like J is for jollof rice. And Jollof rice is a dish that it's made all over the continent, but each country will generally tell you that they make it the best. And obviously Liberians make it the best. Obviously. And obviously, <laughs> obviously. And so we collaborated on that. And I'm not a children's book author. I consider myself a novelist, but we ended up using this pilot for these books, which was maybe like four or five because I'd researched. Okay, so then how does printing work and how does distribution work? And using these pilot books to then approach writers and illustrators from just the places that you very rarely see yourself in a book in some contexts and collaborated with them. And so we have about 23 books for Liberia, Guinea, Haiti. We have an Afro-Brazilian feature. We worked with an Afro-Brazilian writer and an illustrator to produce. And we are working on a Ghanaian reproduction of playwright Efua Sutherland's book, Tahinta. And I know how important representation is just for me, how wonderful and accepted I felt when I would read books like Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters. Or when later on in life, I was introduced to Ben Okri and other African writers that just greatly influenced me. And so... One more book goal is then to make sure that children who would just barely or rarely ever see themselves in books and then work with writers and illustrators from the country to make sure that they are accurate representations because that's not saying I mean books about Africa have existed for a very long time, but they're not always by Africans they're not always by people who say, "Ah, oh, well, it is not just one country or it isn't just elephants." and what that does, as we discussed before, is it creates a world and it creates dialogue that Uh, is usually centered around what is wrong with a place. Even though someone has, you know, two or three jobs to feed their family, they're still making time to come into the store and see what they can indulge. And I feel like that interest is so inspiring and so beautiful. So finding ways to connects writers and illustrators from the country with readers from those countries.
1: And how do you get the books out to the public? I guess I'm I'm curious about how your model is similar to or different from like a traditional publishing model where in the United States, you know, these major publishers work primarily not with readers, but with bookstores to get books out to the public. How does your model work?
0: So we aren't sold through bookstores. We have a transactional giving model for the U.S. market. So for every, I think it's about three books we sell. We're able to then work with schools on the ground to create curriculums to distribute the books to the children who are on the ground. Overseas, we are working with like ministries of education and other organizations and groups, local organizations and groups, not international, to also create curriculum and make sure that people and the kids who would mostly benefit from these books are receiving them. Our distribution here is through Amazon, mostly online channels, but then we're also distributed by Scholastic. So it's mostly through schools. And we try to mainly target the groups within the U.S. or the populations within the U.S. that have High concentrations of these kids in the the books that we're representing. So, for instance, Staten Island has like a very high Liberian population. In addition to Scholastic working with schools, school districts, and schools within Staten Island to see if they're interested in the books, and also Miami has a very high population of Haitian immigrants, and making sure that we have partnerships down there to to get the books there. We are a nonprofit publisher, so everything that is made goes back into creating more series and more books and then finding innovative ways to tell these stories and share these stories.
1: That's amazing. You're actually, I think, far ahead of the mainstream publishers in terms of um, innovation. Uh, I mentioned Seth Godin's name before, but he talks about how, you know, the publishing industry is going through this decline in part because they're doing nothing to actually connect with the reader. Right. But it sounds like you it's difficult. Yeah, it is difficult.
0: It's difficult. Like we're competing with so much, I would say, like the attention spans and and everything is diminishing now. Like you can't it's it's difficult even for me sometimes. I mean, like you said you were a voracious reader when you were little, but do you ever find yourself every once in a while while you're reading your mind trails off?
1: Oh, absolutely. It happens and all the more time. And, more,
0: and it's more and more. Whereas I feel like before I could just totally get, drown in a book and drown in what I was reading, but I feel like I'm affected by this attention age and the technological age as well.
1: So since the show is about failures, I want to ask you a little bit about that as well. So in building the company and developing your writing career, is there a failure that stands out to you as being particularly valuable? And if so, what makes it valuable?
0: As I mentioned before, when I after graduate school, when I moved back to New York, my first graduate degree was at USC in creative writing. So I was in L.A., moved back to New York, and I was, you know, wide eyed and I was going to get an agent for this magical realism African or Liberian novel. And I was just so excited and interested. And I heard no a lot. And one literary agent that was interested in my work, we ended up not being able to see eye to eye on what I should go out to market with first. Of course, as I said before, there was this interest in the immigrant story, a memoir about my family coming over here. And not so much in the novel, and so we ended up parting ways, and that happened in 2010. So that was valuable to me to have been told no so many times, to not be able to find representation right away in the literary industry was valuable because from 2010 to 2015, when my novel did sell, I just grew so much as a writer, as a person, honing that craft, learning how to deal with rejection, learning how to tell stories and innovative ways and challenge myself really learning how to rewrite and edit because that's something that as a writer, as as you probably know as well, can it's difficult to do. And so that was valuable to me because it gave me time. I think like when you're young and you consider yourself a dreamer and there are a lot of things you want and you a lot of things you want to say and you can get disappointed when things don't happen on your timeline or according to your timeline. I was pretty disappointed when that relationship dissolved because i just knew that i wanted to get published right away <laughs> and, you know really really ridiculous ideas of, of what that process would be like because you know once an art enters a commercial industry then there are rules right and so this guy I mean, he wasn't a writer he was a lawyer who happened to be a literary agent so he was thinking along the lines of okay this is this industry this is how this industry works and this is what i'm going to represent but i ended up taking it so personally, but that was very valuable to me because I, it helped me to grow as a writer and spend more time with my work.
1: Sure. Yeah. One of the things that I learned very, very quickly as a professor submitting articles to journals for publication, and now as an author as well is to, is to deal with, with rejection. And so I want to circle back to that. Do you have any particular strategies, self-talk, anything that helps you deal with rejection?
0: prayer, meditation, headspace is a good friend of mine. I developed a thick skin over time. I think like that's something that there's nothing you can really do to expedite the adjustment to rejection. For me, particularly, it just took time and understanding that not everything should be personalized. Sometimes it has nothing to do with me at all. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it does have something to do with me and I I can sort of dissect what's been happening and find ways, if any, that I can be better or that my work can be better. But then as long as I know that I'm giving my best, I know it's try or cliche, then that's all I could do. Your best is all you can do. And so what happens after that? I just had to learn over time, couldn't be personalized, wasn't a reflection of me or my capabilities. So yeah, I would say prayer, meditation, and then just patience. It's going to take time.
1: Absolutely. So the pressure that was coming at you to write the memoir first, right, as opposed to the to the novel. Now, it sounds like this a novel will be published, but you're also you've written a memoir as well.
0: Yeah. So my publisher is, is Grey Wolf Press. They're independent and they're just wonderful. They're a wonderful company. They purchased both the novel and the memoir, but the memoir was on proposal at the time. And so I finished it. I was able to finish a draft and they liked it and So my novel comes out this September and the memoir is going to be released by them
1: next summer. And just for those who are listening, I want to underscore how hard it is to as, as an immigrant to resist this pressure. So kudos to you Wyatt, too, for doing that, because I, I faced I faced the, the same pressure when I first entered academia was, you know, a lot of a lot of my mentors were saying, why don't you write about your home country? Right. You're from Turkey. You know, Turkey so well, just write about it. But that wasn't where my interests were. And I caved in to some extent to that pressure because I wanted to get a tenure track teacher job and eventually get tenure. And I thought, hey, if this is the track to success, at least in the short term, then certainly I'm going to make some of my articles about Turkey, even though that wasn't what really prompted me to go into to academia. So I just wanted to say that, just to underscore how hard it is to resist that that pressure to to conform. And, and kudos to you for doing it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty pervasive because I mean, on one hand, it's like, if it is something, if it was something that it, Was of genuine interest to you, then you should have the freedom to write that. But the fact that it wasn't, you should also have the freedom not to. But there are expectations, as we said, as an immigrant.
1: So, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our allotted time here, but uh, I wanted to give you another opportunity to the extent you have any to share uh, parting words on failure, any strategies, advice, any stories that didn't come up, really anything at all that you'd like to share with the audience.
0: When I was 18, I had been at NYU for about a year. And I took a year leave of absence really just to, to work to be able to, because NYU is so expensive. It's difficult to pay for it consecutively. But I took a year leave of absence to work, try to pay for school. And at the time, I decided that I wanted to write a play and produce a play. So I wrote a play and I was able to to find investors and put it up and it was supposed to run for seven weeks at this theater downtown and it ended up running for two weeks because on the opening night there were about a hundred I think the theater had about 190 seats and guess how many people showed up? Ten? Three. Wow. And one, yeah one of those was my roommate and <laughs> during that time what happened was there was hype you know it was in time out in New York and, you know, oh, this, you know, 18 year old playwright, it was a a lot of hype around it. And I remember when the show closed, I was so devastated. I went back to my parents' house and I just cried for six months, but it was a wonderful learning experience for me because I learned that within any craft, within any pursuit, within any interest or life path, you sort of have to focus on the thing it is that you're you purport to do, right? And keep the focus on that. I think the hype that was surrounding this play and this adventure that I'd set out on distracted me. And so, anytime I talk to people about failure and about their aspirations, I try to emphasize the necessity to just focus on the thing, focus on the thing. Because when you let the external things distract you, like attention, like Hype, like you know, money, how well it could do if you wrote one book instead of the other or published one paper instead of the other, then you will fail, because then even if it gets the outcome you want, it's it's not going to have that purest attention that all of the things you want. I always say just focus on the thing. and if you focus on the thing, then it's really hard to fail, because even if it doesn't excel at the pace that you want it to, you're doing something that is pure and genuine. And it's really about your heart. It's really about your genuine effort and love. And I think that that's something that I remind myself of is just focus on the thing.
1: I love that. Focus on the thing. And I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this conversation on. Way to where can people find more about you and particularly your upcoming novel, which is currently available for pre-orders?
0: Yeah. So my novel, it's the name of it is She Would Be King. And it's a retelling of Liberia's history through the genre of magical realism. And you can find it on Amazon, on indie books, and it'll be released on September 11th. And then you can also find me online on Instagram at Wyatt2, just my first
1: name. Excellent. Wayatu, thank you so much for your time and for joining us and for sharing your inspirational story. You're doing really important work. And I was really happy to have the opportunity, thanks to my wife, to to find out about you and, and learn about you and to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345, 345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.